Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of the Warfighter Podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello, Tom. We've literally spent, I don't know, a good five or ten minutes before this recording going, anything interesting happen? Can we talk about anything on the top of the podcast? No, it turns nothing. It's January. I think we're past Blue Monday, which allegedly is, you know, when you want to end it all. Right. That's new to me, but thank you for that, Colin. If you're listening to this, well done. You know, ultimately, like, if there's nothing to say, it's fine. There's nothing to say. And we've got a great interview today. So I think that's what, that's all, that's all we need, isn't it, for the podcast? There's stuff going on, but it's very mundane and we're not going to bore you with it. I think that's what we Yeah, I won't talk about my toilet. So I'll talk about the heating system and yeah. that'll be great. We'll move on. But what we will talk about is our sponsors because they are the people that make this possible. Now, they've been working on loads of things in the background, but some of the stuff that I've had kind of eyes on is their thought leadership and they are really trying to push the boundaries with this. So it is worth keeping an eye on social media, have a look at the website in the next week or so, team-crucible.co.uk. And there's another thought leadership article coming out from Martin Boswell, who's over at Jacobs and is introducing the crucible effect. The crux of the article, of course, is more detailed than this that I'm going to do justice. But it's all about looking at how basically today's most powerful innovations aren't just powered by one single technology, but by a kind of a convergence of several. And so he's going to explore how things add up to more than the sum of their parts, which is the whole point of the name Crucible, right? And Martin's going to apply that to collective training and how world-class soldiers turn into world-class fighting teams using this concept. So keep an eye out for that article. So we better get on and introduce our interview, which is Ethan Wilson, who I've heard speak in the past, which I was very pleased to have him on. And I don't think we had a point, you know, specific points or agenda around this, but we just said, let's talk about the grey zone and what that is. He's involved in, I guess you could say, simulating all the weird stuff that no one thinks about, but might have an impact. That definitely comes across <laughs> in this. I think this is up there in one of my most enjoyable interviews because of the natural down the pub chat where three interested people get chatted about this and start geeking off and getting excited i think the listeners will enjoy it i definitely related to opening pandora's box when we chat to ethan it's like what's he going to come out with next and oh my goodness isn't it you know interesting or terrifying or fascinating in equal measure so here he is ethan welcome to the warfighter podcast Thanks for having me, Tom. Glad to be on. Second time. Second time, yeah. I thought well, I was going to bring it up, but I like the fact that you've, you've instantly brought it up. For the listeners' benefit, we recorded probably one of the world. let's just call it the world's best interview ever, because it's never going to go live. And it was for season one, and we just just because the way things played out, we didn't actually get the opportunity to put it out on air. But we would have said, don't worry, we'll put it out on season two. Now, season two went live a few months later, which then unfortunately meant a lot of the topics, as the listeners will understand, because we we're going to talk about the grey zone. And Ethan, you're very knowledgeable about historical grey zone operations, but equally and probably more important, current grey zone operations. So that whole interview was all about the current grey zone operations from months ago. And I had to listen to it. It's brilliant. But I felt that if you were willing, and it sounds like you are, you were going to come back on the podcast and we're going to do a similar interview, but with some more current up-to-date information. So thank you very much for persevering with us. I'm happy to be back. I'd love to have the conversation, whether it's recorded or not. It'll be the, it'll be the lost files, you know. In the spirit of Tenacious D, this is now a tribute to the best episode ever. Before we go into it, would you mind introducing yourself, who you are, a little bit about your background and how you find yourself speaking to us on the Warfighter podcast now? Yeah. So 
My name is Ethan Wilson. I'm a solution strategy analyst with Plexus Interface Products, which is a modeling and simulation company that serves the military globally. My background was Navy ISR, so a flyer, and did some similar work as a civilian contractor. More in the geospatial intelligence space, which is fun, so I kind of bounced around doing a bunch of different types of intel. And then fell into modeling and sim like seven years ago, which is kind of a, a dream job for a kid because basically... You know, you're building military video games, and I'm sure you, you guys can all relate. It's a really fun topic and a place to be, especially on the forefront of modern technology. But so, yeah, I kind of fell into doing that. And one of my nerd passions is learning everything I can about something I don't know. So I had to build our modeling database. So I was given stacks of these Jane's books. I don't know if you guys have seen uh-huh. open source books for aircraft and radar. And I had to read every page source every input for every aircraft, every missile, every warhead weight, all that stuff. So I got to nerd out for like a year. And in doing so, I was like, wow, this is so fun. We could build all this into modeling and sim. And then from there, I started playing with, okay, now that I have all these basic components and tanks and everything, being a fan of of military tech, just keeping up to date, I started trying to test and build in new things that just came out. So hypersonic weapons, when those first started kind of appearing on the scene. I'm like, oh, what would happen if we started adding this type of capability and how does it change our scenarios? Kamikaze drones, you know, 2019 when the Saudi Arabia oil field attack happened, when that was kind of coming online. And now with the speed, with uh, the two kind of near peer conflicts, Gaza and the Ukrainian conflict, things are happening so fast. I like to think of my job because my CEO gave me the title. I just used to just be a subject matter expert building modeling and sim. But now I basically, I like to think I, I try to build whatever I see yesterday and do our tool or into modeling and sim in general, work with NATO on some of the working groups and, and try to get modern technology into the training space faster or how we can execute it and make people understand it. Okay. So this topic is probably, if you looked up for this definition in a dictionary, it'd be a can of worms that we, we could go so broad and it could go on for hours. But the original premise for this episode, we wanted to talk about what are gray zone operations? What does it mean? What's the definition of it? And then we can then start to extrapolate onto how do we train for it? And then how do we do use MNS within that cycle in order to prepare for something that's ever evolving? Now, over the last few months, gray zone operations have evolved into peer or near peer conflicts, and we can go into that. So I think what I'm going to try and do is ask you, Ethan, to define gray zone from your perspective, our gray zone operations, what a gray zone is, why it's important, and we should be thinking about it, training for it, and then go on to the kind of the peer-near-peer peer definition, and then we can kind of springboard from that into the discussion. Does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds like a good way to map it. I mean, last time too, I had, I'll have to reference this if you guys do um, sources or whatever, but there's a great book about gray zone operations, and I had the author's name last time. I can't remember it, but I'll, I'll link it here or give it to you for, it's a little short read. It's incredible. But basically gray zone aptly named is the space between very clear conflict that involves warfare and destruction and damn you know kinetic what you call like hard kill kind of conflicts so you know ukraine and the russian conflict very much a clear war where you have like soft conflicts which could be more economic political good example we can talk on later is like you know the u.s bans on chips to hamper China's AI efforts, right? That's Mm -hmm. an economic use of those tools to enable their objectives. So yeah, gray zones, this weird space in between where there could be some direct conflict and there's huge pieces of information warfare, cognitive warfare, and a little bit of military mixed in. I believe, this is my favorite point about this, is I think technological adaptation 
in these near-peer conflicts is accelerating so fast that eventually we'll get to a place where our warfare is hampered and we have to move into these kind of soft power projections of where we can only operate in the gray zone because if we were to all be fully engaged in warfare with that technology, it's you know the end of the human race, essentially. <laughs> or that you can't operate. And so a really good example is space because I want to you know tie that in. From two years ago to now, if you think about what we call like, they call it persistent surveillance. So I was speaking two or three years ago with someone and, and we were kind of wargaming out, building a scenario about an invasion of Taiwan by China or in kind of a, a near-peer conflict. And someone made the comment, they're like, okay, when, when do these satellites pass over this area so we know that we can maneuver when they're not looking? You know, like in the dark, kind of World War II smokescreen. We, we can move our amphibious landing ships. And at the time, even then... I think the open source data was within 30 minutes, if someone isn't cued by an external sensor, so if they, they don't catch you with over-the-horizon radar or, or an actual satellite, um, you'll be discovered, your position. So 30 minutes, and that was three, four years ago. If there's any other indication of a, of a contact, you know, we could talk about like Chinese maritime militia, which is a gray zone arm of the PRC, then it's 15 minutes. You're going to be identified if you've never been seen. So just out in the Pacific, carrier strike group, cruising, you're going to be seen. That kill chain has accelerated so fast. I, I don't know what the time is now, but everyone's launching so many ISR satellites, especially China, you know, kind of the U.S. space race, where now we're going to have what they're starting to call like persistent surveillance, where you are just always under ISR and you could be seen. So how do you change how you operate when that's true, you know, even with stealth systems? So that's really intriguing. Where do you go with that for kinetic effects? Where do you go with that for information warfare? All of those things start to be much more applicable when you can't maneuver without everyone knowing where you're at. Yeah. And it's just, oh, it's just such an interesting topic. Would you be able to give a couple more examples of recent gray zone operations? Now, the one that we labored on about in the last, last episode was the hot air balloons. I don't know what they were, the balloons that, that came across just kind of drifting across America and other countries. And that was really pertinent at the time, which seems to have completely, well, at least from a British perspective, completely gone away from the news now. But that was an example of something happening, being used for nefarious purposes by a state actor, but it wasn't constituted as war. And so there was, is that one example of, of a gray zone operation? Yeah, I would consider that gray zone that escalated quite significantly into us you know, shooting them down. It's in the gray area of, okay, well, it's not a satellite. You know, it's at 80,000 kilometers, so it's not breaking the, what we could consider the space barrier at 100 kilometers. And it's not actually, you know, maybe it's not doing anything, but there was a bunch of mixed information that came out at the time. So that's that's a very much a fear and information and like psychological effect. They're like, oh, they've been incurring over our airspace, right? So that's a lot. That's a failure of NORAD's capabilities. That's a failure of our ability to detect it, engage it. How long have they been there? So there's a whole heap of cognitive effects just through a balloon floating over your air defense zone. Some other really good ones, I like the Chinese maritime militia, which we kind of discussed a little bit, where you have an entire separate, considerably civilian branch of the PRC that operates their own fishing vessels. They're, you know, by all regards, employed fishing in the South China Sea. But their true purpose, and we know because we can track them by like AIS and a number of other things like who the boat's licensed to, I think they have up to like 79 vessels or maybe it's up to an even bigger number like now, maybe 400. But you have a bunch of fishing vessels all throughout the South China Sea that are now basically ISR assets for the PRC that look like civilian commercial ships. When we talked about persistent surveillance earlier, you have to account for when you're moving into an area, just because you don't detect emissions from known military threats, 
a guy with a cell phone on his fishing boat can report your position immediately and now you're a target for anti-area access denial systems. Just like that with cell phone coverage and, and things like that. So having, yeah, having a completely non-militarized arm of a country that is effectively expanding your military capability. So that's a super interesting one. And there's tons of data about the South China Sea, which is where everyone you know, on the U.S. is shifting their focus to, obviously. If you're talking the European side, the very confusing narrative around the pipeline destruction that's happened back and forth. Was it the U.S.? Was it Russian sabotage? So all that critical infrastructure manipulation. So oil and gas prices and things like that being manipulated. And so that is that we're talking about now, the, the oil pipeline coming from Russia to Europe. Was it the Nord Stream pipeline, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's great zone because no one knows, no one, if it comes, no one knows who it was and, and why they did it. It hasn't resulted in a escalation to, it wasn't a, a an act of war. Is that what we're saying? But it has affected, it has an output that is affecting nations. Yeah, it's, it's even higher strategic effects where you're talking, you're, you're just energy prices, your commitment to supporting certain conflicts because... It'll interfere with your civilian populace and their ability to function. This, and then, man, undersea warfare for like the internet cables, another incredibly interesting, not well-known battleground where most of our data is, is by these very limited number of undersea cables. Or There's a whole section of warfare dealing with that and how that can sever data connectivity between countries or between militaries. So yeah, all of these like these things that we've built that we all rely on as kind of global entities now are targets because we have these abilities to start doing things that aren't outright kinetic effects. So cyber is going to be the huge next player. There is a. I feel like some of this is not a new problem. And one example I use is that I think Russian trawlers during the 70s and 80s each had an FSB Communist Party officer on board. And one of their jobs was to note down ships and stuff, pass it back, other information as they sort of went around the British Isles fishing uh what was the other one? Oh, there was a great one of one by andy mcnab if you ever follow him obviously it's not his real name but there's an andy mcnab book and he said you know if you were a foreign power and you wanted to disrupt the the british energy generation system it'd be very easy and he wrote a whole chapter on how he would send in very small teams to blow up transformer stations uh, but the big ones not the small ones you could just do it with these little carbon foil bombs uh, very hard to stop, very hard to, you, you can't pin that down. So I think I've got a feeling this concept is, while it's certainly coming to the fore, it's it's always been there, isn't it, really? Yeah, the asymmetrical warfare gets blended in here too, I think, is where, like you're describing, it's been a arm of more of the intelligence services worldwide, I would say, for, you know, since the Cold War and think That was really interesting. I haven't heard of that. So the importance now, or the, the interest, I think, now is, it's being so proliferated in so many different areas where normal just military operations have to plan or think about it across all the domains. So like information warfare, cyber warfare, and how it's going to affect just simply the carrier strike group's detection in the Pacific. How are they going to be affected by these fishing vessels? And now huge susceptibility of the U.S. infrastructure to cyber attack. The, that's been a huge thing the U.S. has been talking about a lot lately. China invaded a bunch of critical communication systems on Guam that shut them down for a while. So it's it's kind of, I think that is where we are just moving technologically. If you have persistent surveillance with space, we move towards, we start talking really crazy fun topics like quantum systems, quantum sensing, quantum communications and things that will now make stealth archaic. Yeah, you'll just have everyone knows where everyone's at all the time. So the only way you can wage war is like under the hood through cyber effects or information warfare using AI. 
but yeah, it's it's not new. I like you know Normandy. I don't you probably all are more aware. I I didn't know this so recently that they had a whole duplicate invasion planned that there was a huge propaganda machine for to ensure that Normandy wasn't the target location known. So that scale and breadth now just seems to be global for everything, for all types of operations and conflicts. My favorite, we had to do, or I had to do a ton of research on mine warfare, which I never looked into it a whole lot. So I, I'm Navy originally, but I've never been on a ship nor cared about mines. But it's a huge problem, an asymmetric warfare problem, especially for near peer, if you're talking China and Russia. So I started looking into it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a whole nother warfighting domain like air, just massive, tons of knowledge needed, very unique. But the coolest thing about my warfare that I learned that I, I like to use in talking about this is when they would put out just like a barrel, a floating barrel. So a combatant knows that an area may be mined because of intel or, or because they've planted real mines there. But if you detect something in the area where you know there's been mines... It could just be, you know, a barrel of, of wine or whatever. You have to treat it the same as if it were an actual mine. You can't just be like, oh, you know, we don't worry about it. So the like cognitive effect of having something there, like you said, like the plans, even though it may be fake or probably is fake, you can't treat it fake. You have to treat it real. It causes this huge dilemma in moving through that space. So I think that's so diabolical. Uh, <laughs> like the mine warfare, the old guys that are... Uh, fighting that war, they're a small group of them. They are diabolical to the the highest degree for what they're doing. They have these um, ship count triggers, for example, that will, you can enter a minefield and nothing will happen for eight or nine times as you pass. But on the 10th time, they'll all go off. And they've come up with these like crazy layers. So that, I just thought that was a, a similar idea of this gray zone and cyber and all these deceptions is you have to treat them realistically. My final question around examples around gray zone operations, then we'll go into the even trickier, more complex questions around training, preparing for them. What's happening at the moment with the Red Sea and the Houthi rebels using, you know, low cost drones across to intercept shipping? Keen to assume that is perceived as gray zone operations or is it escalated now with the recent strikes? How do we start preparing for these operations and how do we train for risks such as this? Or, or is it just impossible and we have to rely back on our training, just respond dynamically? That's a great question. And the the optics around the Red Sea are really interesting. There's a website called The Drive, and they have a section called War Zone, and they do an incredible job posting updated military events, right, across the world. And they, and they go, whoever writes these articles, they go in super deep. So it's kind of like a really good open source military event besides Twitter, but I, they're great. And so they keep having these Red Sea updates. And from the Western perspective, it's these positive propaganda events. We're like, yeah, we shot down everything that they sent our way. All kamikaze drones, all cruise missiles, all anti-ship missiles, we got them all. And so that's kind of like the tagline. But if you look at the cost of all of those missile intercepts versus what it costs them to launch it, it's, it's a clear strategic failure and will be long-term. So that's really interesting how we're looking at it. I think it's escalated. It's not, that's now you know out of the gray zone. The, the gray zone effect kind of would be this huge impact on shipping in that area, the economic effects that it's had. And now there's the threat. So regardless of whether it continues, there's a threat that this can occur. And on the training side, this is so interesting because three or four years ago, we started hearing about the you know the container ship missile systems. Russians kind of started it. Even in the Jane's books, there were the club missile. I can't remember what the designation is, but they were starting to advertise these container ships 
that have hidden launchers for maritime effects. And I imagine this is probably pretty prolific now, even for the Western states to have this like deception capability. But yeah, how do you train when global shipping is so huge? You know, we're talking South China Sea and how much traffic goes through there. And you're talking about the, sh the fishing vessels and the container ships and they're all potential threats. On the training side, and for like modeling and sim, it's one being aware of these like threats, which is a, a subject matter expertise problem and a, like an information problem. But needing to have real world data ingest be just critical to training. So AIS is a perfect example. Everyone's kind of moving in this direction, which is excellent. The customer has been demanding it. They're like, we want ADSB for air traffic. We need that ingest in our modeling and, and training. We need AIS to know where the shipping traffic is and how to kind of behave and react around it. And then the space side, as you know, we call it TLE, which is to pull on that space traffic data. So now it's critical where before we'd make these really cool scenarios and the only people playing are red and blue. And that's all that matters. Now you have gray, you have third party, you had fourth party, and they're all they all need to be planned for, especially in these modern operations, because they are all potentially effectors, you know, kinetically or not. So I think data ingest, the, the real world data ingest is one of the huge pieces there that, that everyone's been trying to recreate the realistic environment on the modeling and sim side. It does strike me that training for these kind of operations, it isn't a, it's not something where you go out on saucy plane and pretend to do, yeah, have these kind of ultra niche, unique scenarios play out it, it it has to almost be played out in a simulated environment because it's it's all about the second third fourth order effects of seemingly unrelated assets or scenarios to understand it kind of brings home to me because i was one of those people that when you talk to me about these super complex training simulations i'm just seeing it from such a linear kind of line infantry person's perspective and like why do we need to know where the exact location of the satellites are when we're doing our simulation trainings or why do we need to bring in hundreds of thousands of entities into a simulation so close-minded of me but it's like it's not relevant to me or my training or even one or two steps beyond my promotion still not relevant to me so i couldn't see it but now when we start talking about these threats and the scale and the complexity, I'm like, ah, oh, okay, well, I'm starting to get my head around maybe the importance for solving the holy grail of simulation. Yeah, it's, it's all domain. This is what I've been trying to preach quasi-successfully because it's it's very scary. And I think even from everyone's perspective, from the sailor on the ship now to the infantry, the level and medium which threats are coming at them from is now multi-domain where, you know, before... It was very domain to domain. So, you know, worried about artillery, worried about enemy infantry. You know, airstrikes are a huge piece, but if you have, you know, tactical air systems, air defense systems, you can manage it. Now, though, it seems you're under assault from every potential domain and level constantly. One interesting problem is, is how we're trying to pull people out of their domains of expertise and saying, hey, it's actually better that you have knowledge of everything generically because of how good technology is now. You know, we're not needing to have so much expertise in, in one thing. And having knowledge of the entire battlefield and how people may use it will lend a better outcomes in training. And it's a total mindset shift. I think a really good example for near peers in, in Ukraine, if you're talking about the infantry soldier, you have now the psychological threat of these kamikaze or, or FPV drones, right? Where before wasn't a thing. So you have this constant, persistent threat that if you don't have very capable systems, you're going to be impacted. So now it's not just the threat of airstrikes or artillery, but it's all combined. So your electronic warfare, so your signal presence, your concealment, what we call CCD is kind of a, a newer term for me anyway. It's uh, camouflage, concealment, and deception or deceit, but it's the physical ability to hide from sensors. So it could be camo netting, 
could be IR screens or something like that. So you have that layer. You have to worry about that because of persistent surveillance from these drones. Then you have to think about your electronic warfare signature. So we saw so many great examples. If you're on radio or on cell phone, you're getting geolocated and you're getting hit with artillery. We had this huge Russian leadership meeting like six months ago where they all met for a broadcast and it was hit with HIMARS because of signals. So you have to worry about the electronic warfare domain and you have to worry about now your, your physical concealment and deception. And now you're having to worry about space because the commercial space operations for companies like Planet and all these others with commercial constellations that have really good ISR capability, now you're being just persistently seen and targeted with weapons via satellites. So you have so many threat layers and not even thinking about cognitive warfare being played on them through propaganda on social media, their families. It's, it's truly now all domain. And this, you know, if you're on the ship, it's the same thing. You're not just worried about mines or ballistic missiles. You're also worried about low-cost cruise missiles, low-cost drones, the threats all surrounding. It's all axis. So how do you perpetuate this knowledge out and get everyone thinking, okay, we're going to be fighting all over the place. What do we distill down that's important to what level? And then how do we start actually rehearsing it and playing it so we're prepared and don't learn those lessons live, which we're seeing a lot of people learn right now with blood. I think some of the what we're seeing in Ukraine a, should be worrying to Russia, but it should also be very worrying to us because that technology is probably probably two years ago. If you'd proposed it in the US, they said, "Well, it can't be done. You can't you can't carry a, a light warhead with a drone for five hundred dollars. Stop. It won't work." Yeah. Wow. Uh, look, the unmanned maritime conflicts those have been the i think the unsung mm. heroes of, of what's happening but we're having full-on what is that um discovery channel show about the robots fighting you know what i'm talking about robot wars. yeah robot wars we're having that live we have some of these unmanned maritime ukrainian vessels have flamethrowers and rocket launchers on them now and they're having close wow. in there's a great video of it on twitter you could find but now they're fully <laughs> I think they said they wanted to produce up to like 500,000 or a million of them. I think Zelensky was talking about it last week. But now, yeah, we're at full-scale unmanned maritime drones battling it out with coastal vessels that are manned with rockets and flamethrowers and anti-ship cruise missiles. And it's, yeah, I mean, the, te I mean, the technology is going so fast. Put it another way. Sorry, I know this, we're going massive off piece, but how many of those could you buy for one nuclear submarine? And then go, oh, how many FPV drones could you buy for one Apache helicopter? Yes. Before you fuel it, train it, bomb it up. And the West specifically, we don't think that way. You know, we're in these 30 year long programs. I mean, if you look at the new sixth generation fighter that we're all, by the time, I, I fully believe by the time it's employed and implemented, they're going to have counter systems that, that make it redundant. And it's tradition, right? That we're not in a, a, a truly kind of near peer or peer conflict at the moment, you know, in terms of US or the UK. And so we are, as soon as that, as soon as we're not in a, an element of necessity, we just sit back on tradition and we go, well, traditionally, we like our big expensive tanks or our big expensive helicopters, et cetera. And I just, like Colin says, I can't see us pivoting or changing until there is that necessity where that the rule book gets thrown away and suddenly we change it, which is such a negative way to do things. And actually, and that comes back, I, I keep harking on about this and probably people are going to bored me saying it, but building a decent op for who get, who have carte blanche to do whatever they want. And then we start training our best units against them to really start learning from that is almost the only way we're going to learn and go, oh my goodness, 10 times out of 10, our best infantry unit has been obliterated by 100 FPV drones. We didn't have any way of countering that. Probably should change the way we're planning on doing conflict going forward. That's a really brilliant 
idea. And that, yeah, I'd actually, I haven't thought about that yet. That's, if you could train that type of cadre on what we're talking about here, where they start out multi-domain, they're like, okay, keep, keep abreast of what's happening. Implement these ideas at an unclass level because it's all open source now. Classification is a yep. huge problem for modeling and sim and moving technology forward and distilling information. But yeah, if you could have some, if you could have a group of that and all domain being able to, I guess, test right each unit or uh, deployment, that would help a lot. And to back to the modeling and sim side, this like the speed that this is happening. So a little bit before last week, you know, they took video of Russian KH-101s having countermeasures. They were deploying chaff and flare in flight. We'd never seen that. That wasn't a concept when we're building a, a modeling and sim capability, a feature where cruise missiles also have countermeasures. So we see, okay, well, now it's fully proliferated. If we saw it visually, well, we know Russia has it. China's probably employing it. And it's working really well. So this was a response to the Western IADs. How do we get that into the software, get that into the customer's lap? And now they have to train against countermeasures for cruise missiles. You know, it's like the software kill chain. How do we respond fast enough now with these advances technologically where when we're putting software in the customer's laps, it actually meets their needs? Uh Because, you know, these life cycles for the government are so slow. And how do you inform them that that's what they need? They may not know. It's, It's a really wild period we're in with training and modeling a sim. But I love that one, like that, the cruise missiles. And if you start adding into that, the proliferation of electronic warfare, and how everything is jammed all the time and, and teaching those types of concepts. It's too fast. So right now, that's what I'm thinking about is how do we, how do you architect something, you know, for modeling even that can keep pace? Because who knows what direct energy weapons are, are coming real soon across every domain. How are we going to get ready for that? And how are you going to train to that? First of all, shameless plug for your employer and shameless plug for modeling and simulation. And to be fair, I've seen a few organizations looking to tackle this or currently chat tackling it but the need for that complex modeling with thousands and thousands of variables and things that all right as you rightly said this new threats has propped up how does that impact our scenarios that's more needed than ever and you've got to keep doing that you can't you doesn't ever stop now i think traditionally what we've thought is okay we need to introduce more complexity into current op training but if you do that then the training kind of grinds to halt because your tactics haven't evolved fast enough yeah. you need this kind of high level it's almost like a horizon scanning and going right yeah we've we've modeled this in, this new threat and you know the advice is right you just move your tank two kilometers back or whatever that's the strategy until we work, develop a countermeasure that sort of modeling is super important now because without it you're sort of guessing you know you're guessing how this is going to pan out yeah we shoot ourselves in the foot I, when i first started being involved in like design of features for customers which is so fun, man. Like the design side that commercial companies get to do for like how a user interfaces with something is so interesting. I love it. We don't do it a lot on the government side because we don't care. You know, the customer has to want it. (laughs) (laughs) Apple's user friendly because they have to be. Otherwise people aren't going to use it. The government side, I'd say the baseline for for most is, well, does it meet requirements? Does it have to be usable? You know, it doesn't have to not make you want to tear your hair out. I think that in the defense for the people who produce these products in defense, it's a lot of it's with money, ultimately. In order to create a good UI, it requires UI research and then development and then testing. And then that might delay the process further. And actually, not all contracts, but a significant portion of contracts are given generally to the best value for money. So if you can get away with going, we can deliver you everything you've asked for because no no customer or defense customers going, I want a really good UI that's slick, that's not going to pull anyone's hair out. So that won't necessarily be high on the points list. But anyway, back to your point, I spoke over you, but I just think that is an interesting reflection. 
Yeah, and this is back to full circle Grayson stuff. The, the PRC's rapid development of technologies because of that blend of commercial and government that we don't have. So they that demarcation line doesn't exist for them. So that speed and also, you know, stealing all that research and development. So that's a huge piece. Let's not just wash over that. But it's probably worth just mentioning that because again, there might be listeners who don't understand what's going on. Again, gray zone as this is you know, about, but what in the cyberspace, you know, what's the PRC or China writ large doing to the Western organizations? On a couple levels, if you from just a IP perspective, intellectual property, right? It's one of the largest intellectual property depths, you know, in history which is really brilliant to get a technological advantage over a country if you're 30, 40 years behind. So they've leveraged cyber capabilities, you know, traditional intelligence service activity, you know, having intelligence agents embedded in, you know, the Navy and things like this. But also now you're talking, you know, the cognitive warfare and information warfare capability that they're blending in with this using AI and generative AI, which is really interesting. But yeah, so that, that gives you a huge leap. And, I, you know, many professionals say that's why they're caught up so quickly, right, is, is they got all this free intellectual property. And the other huge piece really interesting is the research institutions. You know, for the longest time, Chinese PhD level candidates and students that we were letting into high-level universities like MIT that have done incredible research and work for DARPA and all these, and then immediately have gone back to China, got $3 million paychecks and, and shared all that knowledge. So there's a couple of levels that it's been occurring at. But that is, I mean, that's immediately closed the gap. If you think about on the West side, we've been fighting counterinsurgency for 20 years, failed. And you've had another peer solely developing towards countering you. That's a big gap to close. But on, I had, I had a point on the fidelity side that, that Colin was talking about is worrying about fidelity or, or always wanting higher fidelity and how it inhibits everything. That's always my desire is I want the missile to act exactly like this and be realistic and have the, the different thrust components and the different maneuverability, right? And what I did realize is for everyone just doing their job, one person doesn't want to have to be an expert in rocket science, literally, to use their software. You know, uh, They don't want to have to know because if, if you have a problem there, then you need an entire subject matter expert to, to resolve that. Then you have another problem. The more high fidelity you go, the more computation that you have to struggle with. This is where you know companies like Hadian and and probable and stuff have tried to go with with their cloud computing. So you have more fidelity if you want to be more realistic. Well, you have to have subject matter experts to do it that can actually make it happen. Then you have more processing power that you got to throw at it to make sure that the scenario can even run. And so it's like this infinitely reoccurring problem that we're trying to solve. And cyber is a perfect example, I think, of this where you're mentioning when you added in the complexity, it slowed everything down. So it's some people can distill these really complex things into outcomes. Like, I just want this output. That's really what I want. And plug for U.S. Air Force Academy. They have this capability they're building called Metis, which is a cyber simulation tool that this incredibly brilliant former veteran, uh, Michael Golombeski, invented of his own time and, uh, and work collaborating with all of them. But it's, a, it's like a cyber effect simulator, but it's just the effects which is really brilliant. And it's kind of agnostic to different SIM systems. So it can, it's basically trying to tie, what am I trying to do? Well, I want this radar to shut down, or I, I want to show an operator how these things connect to each other, but he's not modeling all of the network traffic and the IP scheme and the bits and the bytes. And it's not going to that level because no one cares. And, and also it's mostly classified. So he's just saying, okay, the outcome that we're trying to teach you in this training is, you know, you lose some of your comms networks or you have a vulnerability on one of your drones where it got hacked. And I think that's going to be the key. The more we move towards outputs and outcomes, what are the effects that you want to model? None of the other stuff, unless you need it. On the infantry side, right, that would just be, what are the effects on me with EW and everything? Oh, I can't use my comms. 
If I do, I'll get geolocated and get blown up. So that's the effect. You need a model. Everything else could be the same. So it's now starting to just, how do you distill all of these complex, all domain things down to what the customer needs as, a, as an outcome? And I think that's one way to address it. So we are looking, get, coming to the end of this conversation and... You know, I hope people have enjoyed this as much as I have in terms of just building my general knowledge about an area of which I didn't really know anything or much about before. And in keeping with that, I'm going to move into the two letters AI zone. I know you kind of alluded to this earlier, Ethan, but I'm keen to get your take on what the effect of AI and potentially specifically generative AI will have on the future of modeling and simulation going forward for these kind of use cases. Yeah, this is kind of the topic I'm looking at this year. I've been kind of tasked to explore and there's the political ramifications or the warfare ramifications, and then there's the, the modeling and sim ramifications. So if, if you start high level, like on the warfare ramifications, all the things we've been talking about, gray zone and cyber and information operations, when it relates to near peer is, you know, China put out recently, they're like, we see ChatGPT or generative AI as a tool of information operations. So you can have thousands and millions of intelligent agents that replicate humans that can just bombard the internet with fake information. And I would say it's fair for whoever, wherever you are, when you see a news article, everyone else has a different perspective that seems real in their bubble based on all the media they're consuming. So everything that they're seeing tells them their narrative is correct and vice versa. So now you have that capability, you know, the, the agent capability to just saturate that space with uh, false information and false narratives. Then on the modeling and sim side, the big problem we were talking about is, okay, warfare is moving to all domain. It's moving there so fast. We don't have an idea of how to model and replicate these systems fast enough. And we don't have a way to get it to the customer fast enough to train them to react. And so I think the huge piece, honestly, Jared AI could do is, is increase development speed. I think we're seeing this in the commercial space that the military will catch up, I believe, eventually, where software development with hundreds of engineers doing agile programming is going to be dead soon. And it's going to be one to two engineers able to massively create these capabilities way faster, way more bespoke. Down to, I think, the future, not to be the you know canary in the coal mine, I guess, is you know what are, what are government contractors going to do in the future where the customer can develop their own software? Interesting thought. When they don't need someone to translate everything, they have an AI agent capable of mapping out the requirements to code, executing the test, and then having a functioning product. I think that is kind of the end game. But Jaravaz can increase dev speed, so it can give you that ability to develop these models faster, get them out faster, you know, DevSecOps. I think you're talking about product manuals and training and things like that. You can teach these LLMs, custom create your own, where you don't need product support anymore as much. You don't need SMEs. You could have something knowledgeable of all of your products and capability that can interface with the customer in a way that meets their needs at no cost. Another one is the coolest one you kind of mentioned about Opt4, but is giving generative AI the ability to know all the scenarios you've built, give them access to your capability, and can it then begin creating, much like we use it to create, you know, new images and new text that's cobbled together from historical data. Can we do that with scenarios? Can we basically start having these, you know, randomly generated threat scenarios based on the open source data that's available? And that would allow us to keep pace, not having to have a human read the articles that I read and then go try to manually build it, but have something connected to an updated information source, tie it to your code where it can create entities and distribute them and have some reasonable tactics. So you go into the office, you're like, we're going to do training. Let's execute the scenario that GPT created for us yesterday. And it has cruise missiles with chaff and flare in it. 
because of that ability, you know, you don't have to have the human in a loop. So there's these real huge possibilities, especially for modeling and simulation, I think with generative AI that we're all, we're all kind of afraid to start touching, but I think it's going to have huge ramifications and it's kind of necessary. I think now with how technology is moving, how fast it's advancing and how we're seeing it implemented next day in modern warfare, we have to have something else besides us helping to recreate that environment and make it realistic so that we can train to it. I think it's just kind of part of the path. I think my concern with a lot of this is not that we can't do it, but we won't like the answer. If the answer out of all the modeling and scenario development and stuff and says, where well, you don't need to build all those tanks or, you know, or let's not, not so many expensive aircraft. You need some, but what you need is these things. And they go, but that's not what we do. Yeah, it's going to go against our con- our conventional thinking. Yeah. Well, those powers will fail. <laughs> so that'll meet the true test in a near-peer conflict is who listened and who paid attention to technology and, and who didn't. We saw that with Russia and Ukraine or seeing it, but they're slowly adapting as well. We're definitely like, never going to like it, the answers. It, it, plays out. it plays out the same every time. You know, you go to war with the, the equipment and the personnel you have. Often that fails at the first pass, and then you introduce the equipment you actually need through URs during the war. Do you remember that? This is going to show my age or my my interest. There's a Star Trek episode with the original series. And the premise was warfare had advanced so much and was so destructive that these two populations basically had an AI running modeling and sim of both countries' capability. And whatever it decided, the population had to report to like the gas chamber to be deleted. No. That's where, yeah. And that's where warfare moved to, where the capability was so good you couldn't engage in real war. So an AI managed this simulated war and they had simulated casualties translate to real casualties. And it's interesting that's so far fetched, but there's some progression towards that when you start thinking of the US and how you know how we're moving towards that replicator program with all the drone swarms controlled by AI. Like you could see hints of that vision. I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to ask you about replicator. How do you see that? What's replicator? It's the U.S. is kind of like manufacturing incentive to just create and deploy tons of, they would say, expendable but low cost. Well, we, we use the term, I've been using the term CCA, so collaborative combat aircraft. Man, this is such maybe another time. This is another fun thing I'm working on is, is, yeah, where do you move to where humans are no longer in the loop and you have to do command and control in all domain for drones that have very strong artificial intelligence? And so there's some companies like Shield AI, you know, they have their hive mind AI that's being operationally deployed right now and was used to drive like an F-16 and real dogfighting, I believe. But yeah, it's where it's all moving. It's moving to drone swarms in all domains controlled by AI. And, and hopefully humans are going to move to a command and control human in the loop, yes or no, engage capability. But that, yeah, that's all part of this modern advancement towards a future of potentially no warfare and only gray zone warfare. And as we go further, this this next step, and I promise listeners will come to the end of this conversation soon, but I mean, you say human in the loop, yes, no thing, but is there the threat or the risk that the adversary doesn't have the human in the loop, yes, no, and then suddenly you've got fewer scruples and, and actually probably more effective, inverted commas, drone swarms without needing the yeah, the human to decide yes or no? Yeah, I, th- I think we'll see that morality taken advantage of. And that's interesting for each AI agent that's developed, which one will will win out because it's be based on the training data that was given to it. Eve, there was a quote I just read about the, you know, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, 
how their training data and their their AI, they didn't want it to go against their socialist views. So they can only train their their AI to this very specific data set that conforms to their beliefs and their their systems. I think that's a that's a huge problem. There's too many huge tech advancements and issues that something like your idea, Tom, of like having an op for that's ready for it. Or, we're going to need a complete readjustment of many systems really soon to to be successful, I think. Great. Well, there's a lot to ponder over there and <laughs> and a lot of different avenues we can go for a later date, Ethan. So we'd love to have you back on a, a, in future series. That's all from me, Colin. Anything from you? Yeah, thanks for getting up at zero dark 30, whatever it was. Yeah, I'm up before all the kids, so this is rare. That was really quite scary because I think... <laughs> I just wonder, as we sort of mentioned in the past, there's a reticence to simulate the reality of modern warfare because we might find that all our calculations are wrong. What if a proficient force with loads of $500 FPV drones could destroy our main battle tanks very quickly? Yep. As, as a comment is made, sometimes we're lucky our enemies are so stupid because if they had some thought and intelligence and planning, they'd be really dangerous. Yeah, and I think maybe our enemies are are not going to be as stupid going forward. <laughs> That's right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily take much for them to get organized. And I, th- I think we've already seen that with looking at the Red Sea, what's going on now. And yeah. and, and you've, you've got forces which you know, 20 years ago would struggle to get a couple of rocks together. And now actually that there's a credible drone threat that is beyond annoying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, beyond an embuggerance and actually <laughs> is going to have a real impact on the world economy. And we don't have an economic way to deal with it. Uh, so, well, I think I've said this a number of times on the podcast. It's, I just hope someone somewhere is panicking about this in power. And when I say panicking, you know, you know, I don't mean running around with the hair on fire, but actually going right. Let's put a rocket up people's bums. Let's screw things up and start from the drawing board and go right. We are where we're at. Let's look how we adapt for the future, and not like let's look and take six or twelve months to write a report. And then three to four years to then to get the funding line allocated, then to get some to bid for it and then to deliver on it. And then actually go, no, that's not going to work because it's all going to change in, in six to 12 months time again. You know, let's hope someone somewhere is realizing that and making changes associated with it. Scale of one to 10 of that likelihood, Colin? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, well, you know, what can I say? I think if we could highlight some of these, these realities, that's helpful. But I, I mean, I am aware of some good work going on um, but I think then, as you rightly say, we just need to get, get organized, have a sense of urgency with some of this stuff. But, but there are nations in Europe who are very worried, and rightly so, and taking things very seriously. We are very lucky in the UK that we are an island. That seems to give us a lot of leeway. But as we're in a, you know, a very connected world, then we're not really insulated from a lot of this. As anyone who's tried to buy olive oil or sunflower oil in the last year has found out. On that note, actually, Conor, I saw the Chief of Defence Staff mentioning that there's going to be a need for mobilisation if war escalates. Um, Have you been getting down the gym, getting yourself ready for that? (laughs) Yes. Well, we're in trouble if they call me up. (laughs) Well, um, it's a great episode. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully we'll get him on again because I think there's literally a podcast in just him and his thoughts and his musings (laughs) with Ethan. If anyone wants to find out more or make sure you don't miss an episode, then we are on LinkedIn, just search for the Warfighter podcast on there. There's a newsletter that only the episodes get sent out via that newsletter. So, you know, every time there's an episode, a little message gets sent out and you can have a listen. And um, I'll speak to you next week, Colin. All right. Till next time. 